Hello, I'm Clover Stroud and welcome to Tiny Acts of Bravery. My guest this week is conflict reporter and chief international correspondent for CNN, Clarissa Ward. With over two decades experience reporting from the most turbulent countries and conflicts on the planet, Clarissa is a woman who absolutely embodies bravery, but does it with a very light touch too. The roll call of her career is long and her working life has among others involved being embedded with the US military in Iraq, covering the Israeli-Lebanese war in the Indian Ocean tsunami, the execution of Saddam Hussein and the war in Afghanistan. She won a prestigious Peabody Award for her coverage in Syria and I spent much of the summer of 2020 glued to a screen watching Clarissa interviewing the Taliban during the withdrawal of troops from Kabul. Most recently, she was reporting in Ukraine, where she was reporting on the advance of Russian troops and the refugee situation. I found Clarissa absolutely fascinating to talk to about what bravery means to her. She's very articulate and very graceful and genuinely completely self-effacing, the antithesis of that rather macho, swaggering image of a often male war reporter. I was really surprised by Clarissa's definition of true bravery, and this was an incredibly moving conversation in which she also talked to me about the bravery that motherhood demands, especially in relation to her son's diagnosis of a very rare genetic condition. Clarissa is so full of wisdom. I love the time that I spent in her company. It was so valuable, and I would really love to know your thoughts on Clarissa's specific take on bravery. Clarissa, it's a real treat to be with you. Um, I've read your book on all fronts twice. And as um, the chief international correspondent for CNN and the recipient of numerous awards and and a woman whose career has taken you into some of the most dangerous parts of the world, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and recently in Ukraine, to hear you talk about bravery is, um, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated to hear what you have to say about it. <laughs> First of all, I wanted to find out when, rather than when you felt you had been most brave, but what was what's the situation that you have felt most in danger during your career? The situation where I felt most in danger, I would say there's a few of them. Mm. Um, the first, the, the second trip I did to Iraq when I was 25 years old, I was a freelance producer and we were staying in a hotel called the Palestine Hotel in central Baghdad. And we came under a coordinated triple suicide car bombing attack. And after the second car had blown itself up at the gate to the hotel, I had a real moment of understanding for the first time in my life that I could really die and that this was real and that it wasn't a game and that it wasn't a movie. And that was absolutely petrifying in ways that are different from what I think I expected that kind of acrid fear of death to really feel like. It's not, it wasn't emotional, it wasn't sad, it was, it just was real. And I was almost in a state of shock, I guess. You just sort of go into like a trance to try to do whatever you can to mitigate imminent possibility of death. In this case, it was going into a, a safe room that we had built and putting on our helmets and our body armor and waiting and then hearing the third blast and eventually realizing that um, that we would very fortunately live to tell the tale. But that was certainly a moment where 
if this final truck that was loaded with explosives that was supposed to be the grand finale, so to speak, had not got caught, the axle got caught on some concertina wire around the perimeter of the hotel, if it hadn't been for that, um, the hotel probably would have been completely destroyed and, and, and likely many of us would have been killed or seriously injured. Then there have been other incidents in Syria where I went alone into Syria because I was able to get a tourism visa and the producer who I've been hoping to travel with did not. And there was a kind of long conversation about whether I should go alone, whether that made sense, whether it didn't. And I think I knew deep down that I was always going to go, but it was still a very frightening prospect to be doing it alone. And one of the things I love most about working in television is that it is a team and it is collaborative and you draw a lot of sucker from being surrounded by other people and not feeling so alone. And then I have had another more recent experience in Kharkiv uh, where we went out with paramedics who were, Kharkiv I should say, sorry, is a city in the northeastern part of Ukraine that was coming under heavy attack. And we went to this neighborhood that was being bombarded day in and day out. And we went out with ambulance workers who were continuing to treat the injured who were still living in these places. And as we arrived at one of the calls that they were making, a salvo of rockets just went slamming into the building next door and that was much too close for comfort. So those are moments where I have felt the strongest fear or the the strongest sense that, uh, that potentially I could be in real danger. So you've described a, a long career in those instances, but when you think of yourself as that young woman and experiencing, and you write about it in the book, you say at that moment of the bomb, you said you say you felt, what am I doing here? This is too dangerous. Mm. The risks are too high. You, you know, you were in this incredibly dangerous situation as a very young woman and inexperienced at that mm. point. What makes you want to keep going? You know, many people would think I'm in absolute mortal danger of my life. Get me out of here and never take me back to that kind of environment again. Well, I think that first of all, you, in the moment, you're like exactly as I describe in the book, this sort of awful, visceral, why am I here? This is insanity. This is real. This is potential death. And then when you survive, it's a very different series of emotions that you feel. There's exhilaration. There's relief. There is a very intense feeling of being alive, um, which is powerful and intense and exciting almost. And I think when people talk about war correspondents getting addicted to the adrenaline, that's sort of what they're talking about is that feeling of overcoming or getting through an incredibly dangerous or difficult situation. And what you find is that when you tell people afterwards what happened, rather than being kind of re-traumatized by it, there is a sort of veil between yourself and the retelling of it, between the original experience and the retelling. So you're never quite fully going there. You kind of have a version of it that you tell and you get so used to telling it that you're able to tell it without re-experiencing mm. it, if that makes sense. Mm. And I also think that that was a situation where we didn't lose anyone, which was incredibly lucky. I think that when you experience tragedy or death or horror or violence on that level, and you do lose somebody or you see somebody, even if you don't know who's been lost, then it is a different experience. And um, it is harder to find that courage, to summon that will uh, 
to return to that kind of an environment once you've actually really experienced not just the fear of death, but the actual experience of death through others around you. You mentioned there about there's a veil and that you detach slightly in the retelling. How do you not become too detached and that it becomes a kind of something that you you simply talk about because you are going repeatedly back into really dangerous situations. How do you sort of remain attached to the story and yet detached enough to be able to do your work? It's a really fine line and different people have different ways of approaching it. I need to feel intensely connected to a story and to the people whose stories that I'm telling. And so I will always have these moments that are often off camera. They're not things that are going on the news, but they're intense, intimate exchanges with people whose lives I have the privilege of intersecting with that I find profoundly moving on Mm. some level. And it can be an act of resilience, a small act of kindness. It can be a simple laugh. It can be someone I knew and loved who who was killed in Syria. My driver, Ayman, who I was extremely fond of, was killed while he was visiting a friend in the hospital and, and the hospital was bombed. And these are the things that you kind of hold very like closely and you don't tell those stories Mm. at dinner parties. Mm. Those aren't the stories that people are necessarily looking to hear and they're much harder to talk about. Right. And for me, they take on an almost kind of sacred quality. So you really treasure those moments and that is definitely what keeps me going back. That feeling of profound connection to people a world away, from often different cultures, different religions, and this very palpable thread of humanity that I feel binds us all together. So it's that, the human connection that is driving you and the need to tell the story. Because you also write about early on in the book, understanding that you you describe yourself as a vessel for telling other people's Mm. stories. Can you talk a bit more about that? Well, I think some people are blessed in that they are creators. I think you're kind of a creator, actually. The way you write and and that process and that incredible act of discipline, but also creation, Mm. literally creating these wonderful stories. I have always felt personally that I'm not really a creator as much as I am a communicator. So I become inspired by other people and other people's stories and then just try to share them or amplify them to a wider audience or translate them even to a small audience, but of people who might not have any interaction Mm. with that individual. And so for me to do that effectively, there is, I feel like a kind of openness, a porousness. And I'm sure this is the same as for you as a writer too. You have to allow yourself to feel all the feels, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and to really, even if it's just in the moment, if I'm interviewing someone who has been through some terrible tragedy, I have to be wide open to it and feeling it vicariously. Obviously not on on the level that the individual is, but really wide open, as empathetic as I could possibly mm. be and trying to avoid the temptation that most people who do this work have, I think, which is to kind of put down the boundaries and shut off. 
Now, obviously, you do have boundaries as well. I don't take that home with me. I mean, it's sort of in the body somewhere and it it's always in my heart, but I don't relive it constantly and constantly feel that grief or that sadness. But I do think that in the moment when you're really having that that conversation or that that moment. So I, of course, feel intensely sad and and often just frankly in despair about mm. things I see and conversations I have and people I meet and and think about those people a lot afterwards and want to always feel that I am doing justice to their story, that I am never being flippant mm. about their story. But still, when it comes to your own tragedy and telling your own story, it is so raw and so intense. And it really requires, I think, a different kind of a different kind of courage. And I have often noticed, and I have laughed about with my friends, they're like, how are you the one who goes out to war zones and puts yourself in these situations and tells these incredibly tragic stories, but you're also the one, like within this, you know, my group of oldest mm -hmm. friends, who is most often like, help, I'm sad. I feel totally overwhelmed by mm -hmm. this situation. Mm -hmm. Whatever it might be, whether it's, to deal with the intense hormones when your milk comes in after mm. having a baby, whether it's to deal with, you know, difficulties with your children or your husband or whatever it may be. I'm the first person to put up my hand and be like, I'm struggling. I need help. This is hard. I'm overwhelmed. I'm really sad. Where other people I feel like are much braver than I am. I'm interested by the way you you almost seem to be dismissive or underestimate the what feels like your extraordinary courage. Not dismissive, that's the wrong mm. word, but you under, underestimate your extraordinary courage. I mean, I remember in 2021 watching you absolutely fascinated um, interviewing the Taliban when, when the Americans were right. withdrawing from Kabul. And I just thought, this woman is is so extraordinarily brave to be remaining in this what looks like just the most horrific situation. Do you feel that's a brave thing to have done? Not really, honestly. And I understand why other people think it's brave. Um, I would say that often when you're looking from the outside and you're not fully aware of the the dynamics on the ground, mm. which you never are, obviously, if you're looking from the mm. outside, that things can look a lot more dangerous than they are. I don't want to downplay that that was a danger. That was a dangerous moment. And there were some very, I mean, it was brave when we were outside the airport and I was asking that Taliban fighter about his truncheon and he was high on something and then took the safety off his rifle and was running around screaming and shots were being fired in the air. That was chaos. That was very dangerous. So I'll, I'll give you that. But in terms of confronting the Taliban and talking to them and, and pushing them on certain topics, I had spent quite a lot of time with the Taliban up until that point. And so I had a pretty good sense of, first of all, the boundaries or the mm. limits um, that I could push to. I also had very good contacts through the Afghan filmmaker I was working with. 
And so we had a strong conviction that we were going to be allowed to continue reporting and doing our work, where a lot of my other colleagues, understandably, hadn't necessarily spent that much time with the Taliban in that time frame, and mm. therefore, for very good reason, moved to the airport, which, by the way, ended up being the sort of focus of the story anyway. So I think that Ultimately, when we talk about what bravery is, though, because a lot of people are like, oh, it's amazing, like you do this or that, and you're not even scared. And to me, bravery is very much not about not being scared. And I'm sorry to use a double negative there. But like people who are not scared are not brave. They're reckless. Mm. Bravery is about being really frightened, but having the wherewithal to summon a sense of calm and clarity in that moment and push through with what you need to do in spite of the fear that is usually raging in mm. your chest. Mm. And that is something that I think ultimately, yes, some people are naturally brave, of course. I'm not really one of them. Really, I think it's something that over time, it's a discipline that you learn because you realize that when you are in a dangerous place, panic can get you killed. Mm. Panic is the most dangerous thing you can do in a chaotic situation. So even if you're feeling panic, which is normal, you have to quieten that. It's not going to serve you. Its only service is to tell you to get out. Well, thank you, okay, I know I need to get out. And now I need to turn down the volume on you and be ruthlessly focused on my environment, what the actual threats are, how I can get my work done quickly and efficiently and with as little danger posed to our team as possible and then get out. And sometimes it may be a case where it's like, you can't even do your work, forget doing your work, just get out. Um, and that is a skill that takes a long time mm. Um, some people, as I said, are more naturally attuned to it or, you know, more likely to be good at it. For me, it's been a real act of will <laughs> to to sort of improve that. Because you, in your book, you write about in 2005 when you were going into Baghdad, I think you must have been about 20. 25. 25. And you say, I had no experience in the field and I'd never been in a war zone. Such details seemed unimportant, both to me and the chain of command. And after attending a hostile environments training course where I learned how to tie a tourniquet and duck for cover if there was incoming fire, I was pronounced good to go. And the idea of that, <laughs> you know, it almost sounds like a kind of scout training. You know, it's very, very minimal yeah. kind of training. So to be a war reporter, to be a conflict zone reporter, to do it, presumably you can only learn to do it on the ground. You can only learn to do it on the ground. And the most important thing is to learn from people who've been doing it a lot longer mm. than you have. Mm. That's how you are going to get more experience. Yes, by being out there, but by asking a lot of questions, by observing the way other people do it. I cannot bear it when I see that sort of swagger or braggadocio that is commonly associated with the sort of swashbuckling war correspondent of old. That kind of attitude is so dangerous. And usually you only see it with correspondents who are actually less experienced, 
who have not had close calls, mm. who have not lost friends in war. Because by the way, once you get to that stage, God forbid, and you know, most of us who do this for a long time do have this, where you have lost loved ones, where you have lost good friends, where you have seen people maimed, where you have spent time with beautiful families who have been killed after you have left, then you understand that that, that swagger, it really has no place. Yes. Um, and it belies a, an arrogance or a sort of cavalier attitude that again is dangerous. You have to be humble to do this job. And maybe that's why I'm so reluctant to even thinking think of myself in those terms as being a really brave right, person. Right. Because ultimately it's a distraction mm. and it's it's heady stuff, obviously. Mm. And everyone loves to hear praise. But I have found in my career that praise is as distracting as criticism is. And all of it is taking you your focus away from where it needs to be, which is on the work and on making sure that you and your team, it's not that you don't take any risks, you have to take calculated risks, but they really require a lot of thought and attention. So before a trip, and I mean, presumably sometimes you don't know that, that that's gonna happen if a situation suddenly arises, but in order to have that kind of quieter courage rather than that, as you say, the sort of old fashioned idea of a war reporter, which is very, very unappealing now as well, um, there must be a huge amount of preparation that goes into what you're about to go and witness. So there's like multiple layers. And I, again, I'm lucky I work in television. I work for CNN. We have a huge amount of resources. So I don't have to do it all myself. Mm -hmm. I work with a cameraman. I work with a producer. I work with a security consultant. The security consultant will take on the lion's share of the responsibility in terms of preps and and preps are extensive like do we have a generator do we have diesel do we have armored vehicles have we checked the cars every morning have we sent in photographs of license plates are we doing check-ins every 2 hours are our trackers working i mean it's a whole full-time mm. job mm. to be actively focused on maintaining good security and planning and preparation I tend to focus more in advance on what the stories are that I think that we're gonna try to go after. Mm. It's hard though, because if you do that too much, if you have a really fixed idea of what the story looks like and what you want it to look like, then when you get on the ground and things look a little bit different and people start saying slightly different things than you'd expected, there can be a reflexive um, tendency to try to shape the story back to what you thought it was going to be instead of just allowing it to organically be what mm, it is. Mm. So yes, there's a lot of preparation, but then you also have to be open to going with the flow in the moment. And that goes for everything, for security as well. So ahead of our Kharkiv story that we did with the paramedics, of course, we're like, finding every hospital, trying to track activity in this area, Saltivka, over the past few days. And are there patterns? Are there times of day where there's more activity? And what do we do in X, Y, or Z scenario? But then, ultimately, when you step out on the day, you understand that you are stepping into the unknown and that the day will unfold as the day is going to unfold. And it probably won't look anything like what you had prepared for. But the simple act, the discipline of doing the preparation, 
of doing the research on the story, of doing the security research, of making sure if you're the cameraman that every battery has been charged six times and that every camera is ready to go in an easy to reach pocket. That's what makes you a good operator on the ground when things do unfold, mm. when chaos does ensue, because you have that discipline and you have that that confidence that comes with knowing I can get through this. Mm. I just need to keep my whips about me. Mm. How do you remain detached? You need to get your story you and do your work, I mean, but then you... You have to have... Okay, so you, you don't remain detached, I don't think. Some people, maybe they do. I don't. But you do have to have, you know, in the same way that when a surgeon in an ER or an A&E, right, is okay, there's been a train derailment, God forbid, and they're bringing in all these horrendous injuries. Mm. They kind of get on with it, right? And then later, there's going to be a lot of reckoning mm. with everything that they've seen and taken on. But you do have to have that mindset of like, I'm going to be disciplined, I've got to be professional, I've got to get through this. I don't think that mean means you need to be detached. Mm. You just have to have control. And how do you learn that? How do you learn how to do that? You learn that through many, in my case, many, many, many years of experience and realizing that the times you were in most danger, honestly, were the times when you really started panicking and you get, let your imagination run mm -hmm. away with you. And then also you become so consumed in your own narrative of like what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing and how scared I am and what I'm thinking, you know, it's not helpful. Mm. And so if I really want to get to the story and tell the story, I have to accept there is a level of risk that I am surrendering to the universe and I am not comfortable with it and I don't love it, but you hold your nose and you jump and you do it after doing all your preparation. Yeah. And once you have made the decision to hold your nose and jump, then you just need to do it and to have that control. Otherwise, why are you doing What's it? What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. yeah. You go into particularly dangerous situations, but all of life can feel perilous, can't it? And our emotional lives can be a very perilous place oh, to be. I, you know, and listen, there's a difference between covering other people's tragedy and immersing yourself in other people's tragedy and experiencing your own tragedy. Mm. Um, my eldest son, who's five years old, has a very rare neurodevelopmental genetic disorder. It's a de novo mutation, which just means it's not something that's inherited. It's an act of God, act of the universe, completely random. And the process that we went through the first two years of his life First of all, realizing that there's a problem, then trying to get your arms around what that problem is, then getting the diagnosis. And the morning I got his diagnosis, I had been so optimistic that there wasn't going to be a diagnosis, that it was a genetic test and I was hopeful. And I had to go and interview the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, right after the doctor's appointment. Mm. Uh, because Donald Trump was in town and Sadiq Khan had said something about Trump. And I, I can't even remember, but that's what I had to do. And honestly, the courage to come out of that doctor's office meeting and then go and do that interview 
Mm. That to me is like, that's, that's what fucking bravery is, mm. you know? Mm. And so that's what I mean when I talk about the bravery of what I do for a living versus the bravery of like being a mother yourself mm. and opening yourself up to like, you know, your own suffering is one thing, but the suffering of these tiny beings that you love more than anything in the world, like that is unbearable. Like that is hard. That requires reservoirs of like strength and resilience. And I've seen it. I've seen it so many times in war zones. I've seen how mothers will go through unspeakable grief and tragedy and still summon this incredible love and generosity and resilience for their other children. Mm. And, um, but it's another thing altogether to, to have to do that in some small way mm. in, in your, in your own life. I mean, I'm very blessed. My son is not sick. He doesn't have a degenerative disease, but, um, there are challenges that come with it and there's a grieving that comes mm. with it. Mm. And in the initial phase, when you're dealing with that shock, um, and then when my third son was born, he spent three days in the ICU and which was completely traumatizing, not least because it was so triggering of so many of the experiences that I've been through with my first son. And when you have had that, what for other people would be like, well, that's a worst case scenario, like worst case scenarios in my life, like have come true. Mm. And so, uh, you don't have, it's like the rug gets whipped out from underneath you and there's no sense of something to cling on to. Like, and that's again, where prayer and sort of just letting yourself hit the bottom, but knowing, surrender. yeah, mm. surrender again. Mm. And like knowing that like ultimately like you are held, mm. you are held by the universe on some level. Mm. For me, like that is, mm. That's what allows me to surrender. It's what allows me to go to the bottom. It's what allows Do you think the courage, and it's incredibly moving and powerful hearing you talking about your children, and thank you so much for sharing that mm. with me, but do you think the courage of the daily act of mothering is kind of one of the greatest forms of bravery, I suppose? Yes, because oh, there's a saying that's, popular, I think in the US, but maybe in the UK too, where you're only ever as happy as your least happy mm. child. So your whole life has been, and, and you had children young. I had children later on in life. My first son was born when I was 38. So I had 38 years of living like a pretty much very selfish life, very focused on my interior journey and my career. And of course my friends and loved ones and family, but largely a selfish life. And then being a mother is petrifying because I sort of know how to take care of myself and how to deal with that, even in some really challenging and tragic times. But now I love these beings more than I love myself mm. and I can't control their lives. Mm. I mean, dealing with my son's diagnosis, it was just like, get real if you actually think, because as a society, we are weirdly, I think, focused on this idea of like controlling our destiny and manifesting and we're in control. Uh, <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. And that's where surrender comes in again. Mm. It's like, once you realize how little you are in control, mm. once you realize how limited 
modern medicine actually mm-hmm. is, in mm-hmm. spite of how incredible it is too, then you understand what bravery is. And especially when you're talking about these beautiful little people and all you want to do is make them happy and protect them. Mm. But through the act of individuation that comes with birth and then them developing as individuals, you realize more and more that you you can't. You can't do that. You can't always protect them. You can't make things better. And that is petrifying mm. and requires enormous amounts of courage because you continue to do everything you can in your power to give the best, to give the most, to love the hardest, to parent in the most present and nurturing way while understanding that at the end of the day, there are limits to what you can do Mm. to protect them from tragedy, from sadness. And by the way, that's part of life. That's part of their journey. You're not supposed to totally cut them off from tragedy and sadness, but how petrifying it is to allow that process to unfold and not to have control over it. Yeah. I mean, we cannot cut ourselves off from tragedy and sadness. Tragedy and sadness is, I think, sort of at the heart of life, really, and kind of embracing that and and surrendering to that, as we were saying. We've done too much, I believe, as a society to make people believe that life, the purpose of life is happiness. Mm. And what can I do to be happy? And are you happy? And it's a relentless focus on happiness. Life isn't only about happiness. Mm. You're not supposed to be happy all the time. Mm. That's just not reality. Life is way more complex and way more painful and way more beautiful, Mm. by the way, because if you're talking about happiness as this kind of monolith, it becomes numbing at a certain point. It's not, I'm like, I don't know what happiness is. Give me joy. Yeah. Or, or, <laughs> or sadness. Yeah. I'll take both of those over yeah. happiness. Yeah. And do you think having witnessed some of the most tragic and terrifying scenes imaginable, I suppose, and huge amounts of death and suffering, has that changed your relationship with death itself, I suppose? Has that made you feel more... Um, accepting of death or more closer to death? I mean, you've certainly taken yourself very close to death. I think it makes me more, I still think the idea of death is absolutely petrifying Mm. and very heartbreaking. But what it has allowed me to do, which you've talked a lot about in your own journey through grief, which you've been so open about, is to fear being around death less, if that makes Mm. sense to try to lift the taboo on death and sadness and grief and to put myself in situations where probably vicariously experiencing and ultimately bringing back stories of death and tragedy and the whole journey that comes with that. Um, For so long, I feel like there's been a reluctance to talk about it. And mm. even now I often will start talking to somebody about something and I'll bring up death and I can see people get tense and people find it uncomfortable to talk about mm. things that are really emotional mm. uh, or really petrifying. And so I find them emotional and petrifying too, but my reaction is to sort of say, let's talk about them more. 
Yeah. And let's be let's go there with it. Let's go there yeah. and let's be open mm-hmm. to it. And it's not that we come away from it being like, oh, I'm fine with death now. Mm-hmm. Yep, you can't get me. Oh no, but you have the But fear. you're like, I am okay mm-hmm. opening myself up mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. and allowing myself to feel the full range of emotions. And not just okay, I think it has to be. And when after my sister died at the end of 2019, I I wrote um, the red of my blood because I wanted to take myself as close to the idea of death. Like, what is mm. this? You know, she's gone, but I want to kind of be as close to the idea of death and not kind of move swiftly through the grieving process, but really, really get to know it. And I saw myself like almost as though I was like feeling the face, you know, feeling the face of death and the mm. whole body of death and trying mm. to be closer to it in within a normal life, as it were. I'm interested to know what you've learned about living from being around people who have witnessed a great deal of death and um, suffered a great deal, you know, with the many different societies that you've been into. What have you learned about the way that they live from people who are very close to, to death? I think they live in a much more present way, not obviously out of choice, mm. but life is in in the present tense. Mm. It's in the moment. There isn't really a concrete sense of what's coming tomorrow, next week, next month. We spend our whole time obsessively planning, 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 the calendar, the diary, filling it all up. I think that's part of the appeal in a strange way of doing this work is being exposed to people in places where life really only exists in the moment. Mm. And as a result, the moment, the present takes on increased significance somehow. And small things become really profound. Mm. The act of washing your face at the end of a long day in a very desperate situation and feeling the water against Mm. your skin and that relief that comes with sort of cleaning away the grime or the sweat and the taste of the water that gets into your mouth as you're washing your face and putting moisturizer on at the end of that. And it's, you know, okay, I do that every day. I don't even think twice about it when I'm just like, blah, 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 here we go, go to bed, Mm. what's on Netflix? Mm. But when you're in a sort of a much more raw and 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 dangerous situation, it's things do take on much more profundity in the moment. And I don't want to like elevate that either and be like, oh, people who are living in war zones are having a much more kind of present and kind of, you know, the, mm. like that they're having some kind of a superior experience. Mm. They're not. They're living through hell and it's awful. Mm. But Obviously, you can still learn from those situations, and you learn that, like, the only thing that really exists is now. Yeah. And that sort of, yeah, the connection to life. I was very interested in your book about the way that you write about Syria, and that was a sort of Mm. place that you really gave yourself to emotionally. And you write about um, returning here to London after being in Syria and how the colours felt brighter and that you had a sense of sort of purpose and things mattered. And you said even the landscape, the olive groves, shimmering green and silver, felt transcendently beautiful. It was a stark contrast from how I felt back home in London, grey and dull like the weather, uninspired and detached. I found that really interesting because 
I have not had a career like yours in any way at all, but I had a brief period in 2005 to 2007 where I spent quite a lot of time in North Ossetia and the Caucasus Mountains, but actually because of a relationship I was having with somebody there. Fascinating. And I absolutely <laughs> became... Um, and I just got divorced. I had two young children. I'd leave them in London and then um, in Oxford, sorry. And I would go for a couple of weeks every few months out to the Caucasus. It's so intoxicating. I found being there so unbelievably. It, yes, it was exciting. It was very beautiful. But I felt so deeply, deeply alive when mm. I was there. And the people were um, very poor and uh, you know, the Chechen troubles were kind of rumbling away. Beslan had been a couple of years before. I felt a kind of sense of living there. Mm. And then when I came home, I'd often find I get quite depressed. Mm. But as you say, you don't want to, I don't want to kind of over romanticize yes. it. And yet I absolutely felt that. And when I think about that period of time of my life, I think it was almost one of the kind of happiest, most alive times of my life. And even though personally I was having... It wasn't easy in my life at that stage. How do you sort of stop yourself, I suppose, uh, A, romanticizing it, but also manage the change from that kind of the intensity of that kind mm. of experience to coming back to an affluent London life and, and the affluent London life not suddenly seem slightly pointless? So I think the first thing you do is that you just acknowledge it. Mm. And for a long time, I would sort of try to pretend like it wasn't happening. Like mm. I was just really excited to be home and I could feel that deep down I wasn't, I was kind of numb and detached, but I didn't really want to explore what that was about. Now I'm like, okay, when I come home, I'm going to often feel numb and detached. And rather than fill my days with activities to try to distract myself from it, I'm just going to put a metaphorical mattress out and get ready to crash mm. because it's what it is. It's a, it's a crash. The adrenaline subsides. You're back to your kind of humdrum life, which is extremely privileged, but lacking in excitement often. I will say that having children has really changed it a lot for me because I can feel numb and detached from most things from my friends, from my parents, from my husband. I can't feel mm. that from my children especially because they're very little still. Mm. Um, so it's like there's this wellspring of love mm. that I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I can absolutely feel that life with kids can be banal sometimes. I'm not trying to downplay that, but I can't feel that emotional detachment, mm. let's say. So that helps me stay anchored a bit. But mostly I just try to sit with it. I'm like, I'm gonna lie around for at least a week. I'm gonna sleep a lot. I'm gonna eat a lot. I'm not gonna wanna talk to anybody. I'm not gonna wanna talk about what I've just seen or experienced. I may wanna like smoke a couple of cigarettes, which I really shouldn't do in the garden and kind of not talk to anyone. Mm. <laughs> Surrender again, <laughs> Surrender, I suppose. Surrender, <laughs> you know, it's like, Stop trying to tell yourself that you need to like see all your friends and go out dancing and have a fun time. And no, just feel like crap for a while. Yeah. It's, you know, and then ultimately you allow your mindset to, because, you know, when you, when you asked about like the difference between people who are experiencing the proximity of death in their lives on a regular basis, one other part of it is like, it's your mindset. Your mindset determines everything. Mm. 
you can choose how you're going to like feel about a situation. I mean, obviously there's going to be a, a visceral gut punch and there's no getting around that. And you just go with that flow, but then you can also mentally understand and tell yourself that like, I'm going to understand that this is the way I feel in this moment. And then I'm going to choose to put my focus here mm. on something mm. that makes me feel slightly different. Mm. It's not about denying negative thoughts or denying sadness or, you know, feel it all, think it all, work through it all, and then put your focus on something else. And do you think that comes from the experience? I was talking to Helena Bonham Carter about this. And we were talking about how as you get older, just the experience of life, like becoming more yeah. adult in a way, becoming more experienced at living life yeah. enables you to be braver and enables you to be better at life. Yes. Basically, because you've yes. learned how to do it. Yes, it is exactly that. And you think to yourself, I mean, I'm like, oh my gosh, I would never want to be in my 20s again. Yeah. Like, <laughs> hell no. Um, but then, yeah, and there's a relief that comes with that because you are braver. You're braver by virtue of having made it this far. Mm. And And I often say to people, especially younger people, you might get through your 20s and your 30s. No way you're getting through your 40s without tragedy. Mm. Yeah. It's coming. It's going to happen. Okay, yeah. it's going to yeah, happen. Yeah. So, you know, mm. keep that smug look on your face for now. <laughs> but And here's the thing. When it does happen, it's going to hurt like hell, but you'll get through it and you'll feel stronger mm. and you'll feel braver mm. and you'll feel exactly better at navigating life mm and more comfortable with admitting that I don't have to be happy all the time. Mm. That's not the purpose of this journey. Mm. So do you feel bravery is, I'm interested whether it's almost like a muscle that we can work and we can get stronger and stronger at it. I think there's definitely a discipline mm. that comes with learning tools or finding tools to quieten the mind, to sit with things that are painful or unpleasant or ugly and just let them sit. Mm. And yeah, that part of it definitely requires some some form of active discipline, mm. I think, and strength. But I guess that strength to find that discipline, that comes from a different place as well. And that often comes from joy, right? Mm. Like that you find the strength in the joy that then gives you the discipline to push mm. through mm. other things. So it's all about, you know, without getting too woo-woo, like transmuting energy and and understanding that it's all just energy anyway. Mm. And that you do have the ability to push through it in different ways and and finding ways to do that and and to stay strong and and be sad when you need to be sad. Yeah, absolutely. What What is your definition of bravery, if there is a single definition of bravery? I think it comes back to what I was saying in the beginning, which is it's not about not being scared. Mm. Bravery is about allowing yourself to feel that fear, to be frightened, to be scared, and to still push through with what it is that you're doing mm. and to be able to control that fear or keep it in a sort of manageable space. Mm. 
Clarissa, will you will you share your talisman with me? I'm really looking forward to hearing what your talisman is. Yeah. So this is a chapter from the Quran. It's a printout of a chapter from the Quran, uh, the Surah Yasin. And it was given to me in Syria back in 2012. I had spent a week embedded with rebel forces and their families in Idlib, in a city in the north. And it was an incredibly intense and very dangerous. And yeah, it was an extraordinary trip on many levels. And I made some friends and saw a lot of sadness and terrible fighting. And we were getting ready to leave. And that entailed crossing the border illegally in the middle of the night back into Turkey. And we were stopping in a safe house waiting to find out when the coast was clear, when the border guards weren't around and we could try to make a run for it. And I was sitting, as is often the case in conservative societies, in a part of the house with the women. My producer, who was a man, was sitting with the men. And this woman made me some lovely food. And before I left, she put this, she pressed this into my hand and she said, please take this. I want to give it to you to keep you safe. Because uh, some people recite Surah Yasin for like courage or protection. And I took it and we were able to cross successfully. And I've had it ever since. And it comes with me wherever I go. And I just thought it was such a beautiful act of kindness and generosity for mm. her to share that with me. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Those relationships with the people you meet, I mean, holding on to those as you go on through your life is is such a powerful It's everything. Feeling. People always focus when they ask me about this job, oh, how do you do it? You see the worst of humanity. And I say, yes, but I see the best of humanity mm. too. Mm. I see the best of humanity all the time. And it's shame on me that it doesn't always make it onto the news. Mm. And that's a big part of why I wrote the book. But these are the moments. And for anybody listening to this and facing a big challenge, what would be your advice about how to be brave? That challenge might be something massive, you know, or it might be dealing with a much smaller problem. But how can we learn to be braver? What advice would you give to people? Well, I think that, you know, there's many different approaches, but part of it, I believe, is having some kind of a practice. It doesn't have to be a spiritual practice. Yeah. It doesn't have to be about meditation. It can be about getting out in big nature. It can be about dance. It can be about, there are so many different ways mm. to find that stillness. And, and I think it's helpful for people to when you're in that panic state about a problem or a challenge and you're in that, the fear is like fully in your throat and mm. chest and kind of controlling you. It's not about sort of trying to pretend that everything's okay and trying to pretend that you're in control and trying to pretend that it's not frightening. No, but it's about letting yourself sink into that stillness and letting yourself surrender to whatever it is that you're experiencing and knowing you will make it through it. Mm. Clarissa Ward, it's been really, really extraordinary and a huge privilege to talk to you about bravery. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Clover. It's been my pleasure. Talking to Clarissa really made me think about the different worlds that we inhabit. Her experience is obviously 
uh, you know, very, very singular and very extreme, but it was a really fascinating conversation. Yesterday, we left um, where we've been staying in New York State and went into New York, where I visited Ground Zero. And I was really overcome by feeling and emotion and sadness, actually, at seeing the really incredible memorial garden and the a huge kind of water sculpture engraved with everybody's name who died in 9-11. I found this such a moving and beautiful and painful memorial, actually. And it was in kind of real contrast to the excitement that I'd felt earlier on in the afternoon when I'd been walking around with the kids in the city. We've now been in America for a couple of weeks. We've actually been on holiday for the last week. And we're in, we're now in place called Shelter Island near New York for a few more days before we go back and resume our new life in Washington. Um, So much kind of new stuff has been going on and I've had this feeling of not knowing what to hold on to, a feeling of falling in some way, I suppose. I don't have my normal references to hold on to. I don't know the place, I don't know the people And I have found it interesting and at times difficult as well. Like, where do I turn to? What do I hold on to to be me? And I suppose that has made me think about different forms of bravery and the different ways that we define ourselves as well. But much more to discover later. Thank you for listening. I'm Clover Stroud and I really look forward to sharing more brave conversations with some of the amazing guests I have lined up. To keep up with the episode drops, please follow Tiny Acts of Bravery on your podcast platform. And of course, I would be so grateful if you'd rate and review my podcast. And I will be back next week with another brilliant guest.